Where does the decision lie? And that's who do we believe? Do we believe ourselves and how we see things and how we see the church and how we see the world? Or do we believe what God says about the world and the church? Hello, and welcome to this edition of That They Might Know, a podcast dedicated to proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. I am your host, Dr. William Mazella, and our teacher is my friend and brother in the Lord, Joe Durso. After enjoying this discussion of God's Word, if you are seeking discipleship or biblical counseling, please email us. Now for today's message. Dear Heavenly Father, we know and understand that no teaching from the Word of God is easy for sinners. Lord, if we were perfect people, if we had the understanding, your understanding, if we had your heart, we would hear the Word of God and we would, we would love it. Not the way sinners love it but the way perfect, righteous men love it. We're not there yet, Lord. And when the word is preached, it stings and it hurts and we coil back and become defensive. And you've asked us to be like the lamb that doesn't coil back when the the dove lands on it. That's the picture we have of you. The lamb of God upon whom the The dove as a symbol of the Holy Spirit rested. The Holy Spirit doesn't rest on sinful people. It only rests upon the Lamb of God. We would ask, Lord, that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit. So imperfect as we are, we might hear your word and be blessed by it. We might hear it and and delight in it and, and not defend ourselves. I pray, dear Heavenly Father, that the the listeners of this message would be blessed in that way. Blessed with the Holy Spirit of promise, the Holy Spirit of power, and the Holy Spirit of truth. Bless my hearers with this word to bless their hearts and to bless their lives so that it spills over and touches everyone they come in contact with. I ask these things for your honor and glory. In Jesus' name. Amen. We are in episode 75, Who Knows the Teaching from John chapter 7, 1 through 18. Who Knows the Teaching? I'm going to start with John 17 and then we'll back up and we'll work our way forward till we get back to it. And in John seven seventeen, we read these words, If anyone is willing to do his will, he will know about the teaching, whether it is of God or I am speaking from myself. The one who speaks from himself seeks his own glory. But he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him, he is true, and there is no unrighteousness in him. So... <clears throat> How easy is it 
to be confused about the scriptures, the word of God. I mean, can you just read it like every other book? Or is there something about it that just makes it impossible for some and really difficult for others? You know what the reason is for that? Because we want to we want to look at this scripture today and we want to think and meditate on it, expand it a bit, unpack it, and get a fuller meaning as to why it's so confusing. I mean, how easy is it to be confused about the Word of God? A perfect example of how easy it is to become confused can be found in John chapter 7. Beginning with verse 3, Jesus' brothers in this in this uh, scripture attack their brother Jesus by saying, quote, move on from here and go into Judea so that your disciples also may see your good works which you are doing. For no one does anything in secret when he himself is striving to be known publicly. If you are doing these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. I mean, what things to say to Jesus? Move on from here and go into Judea. That's where they wanted to kill him. So that your disciples also may see your good works which you are doing. Like they hadn't seen them already. For no one does anything in secret when he himself is striving to be known publicly. Really? He was striving to be known publicly. You know, he, he, he was telling people constantly, which obviously they were not aware of, or they were overlooking, uh, to say nothing about me. I mean, he, he actually had to leave one region after telling one person that he healed, uh, uh, don't say anything. And then he spread it abroad so much, you know, the good that was done to him and how much he was enjoying life and whatever his benefits were. And that they, Jesus had to leave because there's too many people. And, and that way, he was always running from the public eye. He, did, he wasn't striving, this humble son of God born in a, in, a, in a stable. Like I mean, they knew this story. What is it about people like his own brothers? What is it about us that we can be so hateful? I mean, even towards Jesus. This final statement, you know, for not even his brothers believed in him, explains why they said the things they did. They did not believe that their brother was the Messiah. It did not mean anything to them that he was nothing like anyone else they'd ever met. I'm, I'm being a little sarcastic here, and, and with good reason, uh, and it would be said of all of us, if when we're unbelievers and we're growing up with Jesus, and you look at Jesus and and you don't see Jesus. You, you see something else because our eyes are always blinded when we're in sin. When before a person comes and is converted and his heart is changed, before that time, I mean, we are just completely in the dark. So it didn't mean anything to them that when they watched him day after day for, who knows, 20, 30 years, certainly his parents, and then, and his parents weren't saying this, but his, his brothers, for how many years they were able to understand and see this, it was a long time for most of them, and they had not noticed 
You know, that he didn't get angry like other people. He was always forgiving to everybody. He never sulked around. He wasn't ever cranky, depressed, cantankerous. I mean, nothing that told them that he was extraordinarily different. They didn't get that word. And much much more than any other human being that ever lived. I mean, they, they just didn't get it. They didn't have the scripture that said, and they didn't need it, that he was tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. They saw it before their eyes. No, they couldn't see his heart. They couldn't see what went on on the inside. God knows, and he was God, and God said it in his word. There wasn't a single thought. There wasn't an attitude. There wasn't a motive. Nothing. No sin. And it had to come out in a glorious way, even through his humility. So let's take the following verse, the verses one at a time. First, then he says to them, so here's the response, my time is not yet here, but your time is always ready. Jesus lived on God's time clock every minute of every day of his earthly pilgrimage. He wasn't going anywhere unless it was God's time. Sinners, we do what we want all the time. And that's basically what he said to his brothers. He was telling them the truth in love. The world cannot hate you, he says to them, but it hates me because I testify about it that its deeds are evil. Get that? I mean, he's covering everybody. If he was living when Mother Teresa lived, he'd be saying the same thing. Their deeds are evil. They hate him. They hated him. His brothers hated him. All the time. But for what reason did they hate him? I mean, Jesus said that. The world cannot but hate me. It hates me because I testify about it. So that's the reason. Was it for vanquishing sickness, disease, blindness, the lame, the deaf, and the demon-possessed from the land? Doubtful. Was it because he was mean, evil, and hateful when he only taught to love others? And that's how he lived. He called it the way it was, and they hated him for it. The world does not want to hear what God has to say. At this point, we're getting very close to the reason it's hard to understand God's word and why there are not so many problems and why there are so many problems in today's churches. Yeah, did I say that? I did. I actually said that. The next part becomes a little more difficult to understand. Verse 8, quote, Go up to the feast yourselves. I am not going up to the feast because my time is not yet fully arrived. Now, having said this, these things to them, he stayed in Galilee. Verse 10, but when his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he himself also went up, not publicly, but as though in secret. At first glance, one could ask, was Jesus being honest with his brothers? I mean, he said he wasn't going up, and then he went up. Well, and this is where takes a keen eye and an understanding heart. In actuality, he went up halfway through the feast. 
Verse 14 says, When it was now the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple area and began to teach. Jesus did not go up on his own time or for his own reason. He didn't go up to share in the feast and to take part. He went up to become the sacrifice. They accused him of being prideful and wanted to be in the public eye. How many times he told people and demons not to make him known. He ran from being public. Why? God is humble. For the world at that time, everything was life as usual. They benefited but were baffled by the carpenter turned itinerant preacher. Verse 11. So the Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was a great deal of talk about him in secret among the crowds. Some were saying, he's a good man. Others were saying, no. On the contrary, he's misleading people. See, this is all hush-hush because they, they don't want anyone to hear because they knew that the Jews' hatred for Jesus, and they didn't want to come under that wrath also. However, verse 13, no one was speaking openly about him for fear of the Jews. So what I just said is absolutely correct. Verse 14, but when it was now the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began to teach. This was very near the end of his earthly days. And at the last, he would infuriate the religious leaders. So they would do what they wanted to do and try to kill him. So he taught the people, verse 15, the Jews were astonished, saying, how has this man become learned, not having been educated? There's the question. This is a huge question. It's huge for the surrounding verses uh, and principles of what we're trying to say. And it's huge for the scripture in context. And that is, it's made very clear that he's at the end of his ministry and they look at him and they say, where did this man get this stuff? Did you hear what I just said? Why? This is an uneducated individual cannot hold a group accountable. What? Yes. An uneducated individual cannot hold a group accountable in the world. We haven't got to the church yet. Because it is by groups we establish our power over the masses. Now, I'm not, gonna, I'm not criticizing like universities for being uh, very conscientious and disciplined to learn everything that they can learn. You know, and as far as that, I'm not just saying it's, it's just all about power. But we live in a wicked, sinful world. And one man standing alone has no power by the world's standards. Therefore, no power can be given to an individual by the powers that be, or else they would lose their power. Now, if you're talking in philosophy, you can talk in a lot of areas, sociology. You know, it's not just about science, whatever that science might be, or medicine or engineering. You know, you're just talking about areas where you've you got to get it right. And when people don't get it right, very bad things happen. I understand about the need 
for those kind of restraints and disciplines. But it's not all about that. And right now we're talking about religion. And we're talking about him infuriating the religious leaders. It goes beyond religion and religious leaders into many areas of life. But right here, it's about religion. So one man as an individual just doesn't have any right, especially if he's uneducated. By the way, which group of prophets had power in Israel? You're correct. There were none. As we read the scriptures, the prophets stood alone. I mean, and Elijah may have had as Elisha, but n- no power groups, n- not for prophets. The power of the prophet was first derived from his message. Then secondly, the message always originated from God. The only source of all authentic power. In this world, it's always men against God. This is always true with regards to organized religion. Now, at this point, what I'm about to say, well, it gets really hard to hear. But there is a blessing for those who persevere. The question should not be, why is this person so infuriating? Or what gives you the right to talk into my group? The question must always be, Is this person speaking the truth of God? The second person would be, am I in a place where I can hear the truth of God even though it goes against everything I've been taught and everything I've clinged to? Even though it's wrong, if it's wrong, I mean I've clinged to it. Am I willing to look at that? That's the question. The question must always be, is this person speaking the truth of God? Let's let's follow up that question with with this one. How how many churches do you think there are in America today that would be willing to hear from an outsider? Uh, Not of their particular group, and actually consider seriously the things that that the person says. I mean, how many do you think that would be... Would there be one? You think? I'm thinking not very many, if any. Now, I'm going to say this. In authentic Christianity, the plan, God's plan, remains the same. Acts 4.13. For all. If this is true of Jesus, and people are going to throw at me the apostles, because I'm going to read this verse. Acts 4.13 says, Now as they observed the confidence of Peter and John, and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. No, they didn't get a degree. They were with Jesus actually three years. Three years. And they weren't educated men. I don't know how many of them could read. Maybe they all did. But they were, they recognized them as uneducated men. Now Jesus is God. An authentic prophet can only get his message from being with God, and they were. I know that men love to organize, and it always seems to have the most benefit, and it's, it's the best way to go, but God doesn't ever, think about this, God doesn't ever do things the way we think is best. He doesn't get his, his cues from us. 
We have to come to terms with the way God thinks best. That's the problem we have, is coming to terms with what God says. We want to do it our way or the way we've been taught. Now, this is a huge problem for the church. Quote, For consider your calling, brothers and sisters, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, no gowns and professors' caps, no degrees or PhDs, except for the few that God decides to save who are that way already. Not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. How can we shame the wise when we put so much stock in being worldly wise ourselves? I mean, really think about that. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things that are strong. In Christian circles today, there are many means and methods to get the job done. But let me ask you, but how much glory does God get, honestly, when so little prayer has gone into it? I mean, in the past, George Mueller had no means. He just, he preached. And, And the people, even from the city, gave. And you know what? He, he never made it known. That was his method. Don't tell anybody. Massive undertaking by today's cost. And how? He prayed and let no one know his needs. Would, could we do that today? Would we even think about doing that? Can we have a man who's a, who's a pastor who, who isn't at least have his MDiv and his PhD and been through college and, and all of it technically by the world standards? I mean, who does that? There are men. They're here and there. But they're here and there. And then, well, let me go on. Who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification. And the insignificant, well, I didn't read, and then the insignificant things of the world and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are. So that no human may boast before God, but it is due to him that you are in Christ Jesus. Why are we in Christ Jesus? Today, few can even get the message right. Today, men are still preaching, even though from Luther to the early part of the 19th century, the churches were proclaiming God's calling and election and choice and predestination as the means of saving grace. Today, it's man's free will as if there is such a thing. Who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that just as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Did you hear that? Boast in the Lord. 1 Corinthians 1, 26-31. Now, today men would rather say that a loving God wouldn't send a person to hell without giving him a chance to choose. Jesus. Hello. God gave us all an equal chance in the garden. Because as Adam was, so we all would be. That is the significance of the doctrine of identification. But even yet, so many preachers go the way of the world and place man on the throne. The only 
the throne that only God deserves. God must be at the heart of every authentic prophet. Must be. When the word originates with men, it is no longer the word of God. I mean, that's fairly easy to understand, right? For this reason, as well-meaning as they are, denominational seminaries are not ever the best way to go. I, I'm not even going to, I wouldn't apologize for making that statement. This point we can mention, at this point we can mention Charles Spurgeon, Martin Lloyd-Jones, other people during their time and before, including all the way back to Martin Luther, John Calvin, and all that generation who had to undo and throw in the garbage the teaching that institutions from which they came. They had to throw it in the garbage. Today, people go in their Protestant institutions, and what are they, what, what are they doing there in their denominational and I emphasize their denominational. Of course, some men get large parts of it right. You know, but while we're getting it right, are we still denominational in our thinking and, in our, more importantly, in our behavior? Are we separating ourselves when the church should be uniting? Because that is the undeniable will of God. Absolutely. Alter the New Testament. Just read John 17. But it's all through the New Testament. We are to be of the same mind, and to be of the same mind does not mean agreeing to disagree. It's not the way it works. But we can't understand the scripture. We can't get on the same page. Why? Let's go on. We now come to the key point of the passage out of which I desire to bring some very key principles. Verse 16. Quote, So Jesus answered them and said, My teaching is not my own, and that could be in Greek, mine. My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me, end quote. Are you getting the impact of what is being said and by whom it is being said? This doctrine belongs to God, as all doctrine belongs to God, and there is only one God, howbeit in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Almighty God, in the person of the Son of God, is very clear on who's doing the sending and who he wants to get the credit. We need to be so much more like he is. We want credit for everything. We understand the Christian experience better. We have the intellect. We have the passion. We have the kindness. And on and on, infinitum ad nauseum. It's as if the Son can only see the Father. And make no mistake, it is as if the Father can only see the Son. The Holy Spirit tells the story and hardly ever talks about himself. I mean, we really need to stay right there. We need some of that. We need a lot of that. But let's go on to verse 17. If anyone is willing to do his will, he will know about the teaching whether it is of God or I am speaking from myself. If anyone is willing to do his will, he will know about the teaching, whether it is of God or I am speaking from myself. You know, to properly understand what Jesus is saying, let us ask a, a pertinent question. 
What did we learn from the verse just preceding this one? And what we learned was that Jesus put, and always puts, the will of the Father before himself. Remember, each person is equally God. We, on the other hand, are not God, not eternal, neither omnipresent, omniscient, or omnipotent. I mean, we can't keep ourselves alive from one breath to the next. But we always know better than God, or so we think. I mean, every time a person says, what was, what, why did God allow this to happen? What is that saying? That's a terrible question. I mean, it's horrible. Unless you say, you know, why did God allow this to happen? What does he want to change in me? That's a good way to say it. But that's not the way we often hear it said. After making this most humble and truthful statement, Quote, my teaching is not mine, and by comparison to the way wicked, wretched, evil, God-haters that sinners are, Jesus lays before us the means of knowing the will of God. He really does, if we can hear it. If anyone is willing, if anyone is willing to do his will, he will know about the teaching. He will know about the teaching. Who is willing to do God's will for the pure satisfaction of God's good pleasure? Who's willing to do God's will for God's satisfaction? Let's read from Romans chapter 3. There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues, they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Romans 3, 10 to 18. Why are we reading that? We're reading that as the state of mankind that's untouched by God, before it's touched by God. Paul says in Romans, in this passage, in this Romans passage, not only do men not keep the law, but the vile and evil haters of God and men. So, in other words, we, we don't not do righteousness, we do evil. That's what, he's, that's what Paul's calling us in chapter 3. It may not always be apparent, as in a murderer and a thief, but internally, where it can even be hidden from ourselves, but it will be revealed on Judgment Day. I mean, that you can count on. The point for our choice at this moment is who do we believe? Where does the decision lie? And that's who do we believe? Do we believe ourselves and how we see things and how we see the church and how we see the world? Or do we believe what God says about the world and the church? God loves his church. God's building his church. It's not the building that God is doing that we 
should be concerned about. It's the building we're doing. We should really be concerned about that. Because man cannot save himself. God made not just one, but two covenants, so that by the second, men could be saved. This is from Hebrews chapter 8. For if that first covenant had been faultless, that was the giving of the law, then no place would have been sought for a second. Because finding fault with them, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand and led them out of the land of Egypt, because they did not continue in my covenant, and I disregarded them, says the Lord. That's kind of harsh, and it should be. For this is the second covenant, This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Lord, yet future, I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. None of them shall teach his neighbor, and none his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now you're right, that's future. And it's talking about the nation of Israel. And it's talking about the nation of Israel after the first resurrection. When the saints and those who are beheaded for not receiving the mark of the beast are raised from the dead and come and reign with Christ for a thousand years, sitting on thrones of judgment so that it's only righteousness that's being done. With complete understanding, and listen, with perfect relationship with Jesus Christ, who sits on the throne in Jerusalem. And all around the world, his ministers who are in communion with him through the Holy Spirit and have been made perfect rule. And how do they do this? Because their, their hearts have been rectified. They've been made right. And this is the new covenant. Who made the new covenant? Men. Men keep the new covenant? Absolutely not. That's not what it says. This is actually God's covenant. What does he say? He took them out of the hand, by the hand, and he took them out of the land of Egypt. But this is the new covenant, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. This is what God is doing, just as he's always done, just as he always does. And so while we're waiting for the fulfillment of this covenant in Israel, this is the covenant that's operating in the church today. This covenant and people that they want to ignore like there's any restoration of Israel, wrong, absolutely wrong. God has to keep his covenant Because that's who he is. He's a promise keeper. He's Elohim. He's the covenant keeping, promise keeping, faithful God. And he made this with a national people. We're just right in the interim right now. We're just just in between the, uh, the 483 years which stopped with the church and we'll continue to finish out the seven years that make that final week. So... Right now, where we are is in that second covenant. 
as every individual has always been. You can't get saved outside of it, no matter what, what time and period you live in. These uh, verses seem to speak to a time yet future, and they do. But Romans 8, 7 says this, The mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. Everyone is in the flesh until the new covenant. It's always been that way. It has to be that way. Otherwise, you can't read Romans 5 correctly, where we are identified in Adam. In Adam, we're lost. In Adam, we're in the flesh. In Adam, we are in the bondage of sin that I talked about last time. We are enslaved to sin. We give ourselves to it. And as we give ourselves to do sinful things, we become enslaved to it. So we can't do what we would want to do. No one is free to do what's right who's a sinner. If you don't understand that, you just don't understand the knowledge of sin as it's, as it's taught very clearly throughout Scripture, but mainly in the book of Romans where it becomes super clear. We're unwilling and unable, according to Romans 8, 7. However, God, by sovereign and unaided grace, saves those of whom he chooses. Therefore, any hearer that does not belong to the Lord Jesus Christ, it is my hope that God would have chosen you. I wasn't the one who originated that thought. That was Charles Spurgeon. But it is true according to the word of God and that's why I would repeat it. It's not my hope. I mean, that's in my heart now because, it, because I understand sovereign grace. I understand sovereign choice and election. I understand that God is God and certainly sinners are. Adam couldn't even get it right and he was made good. And he was naive, but he was without sin. And he still chose to do wrong. How, where do we, how could we possibly do better than him? It's ridiculous. So, if you're a hearer, my hope is that God has chosen you. And if he has, look, look to him. Look to him if he's calling you. See the blood of Christ, the blood of the, of the cross. If you are hearing his voice, cry out to him in poverty. You can only cry out in poverty. You can't bring anything with you. You have to cry out in need in helplessness, and plead with him for your salvation. And no person who has not been born again, who has been regenerate, would ever come in poverty. Let me prove that to you. Jesus said in verse 18, this is following 17 where he says, you want to know his will, you have to be willing to do his will. Which begs the question, who's willing to do his will? And I think I've just proved or the scriptures have, that man's not willing. But in verse 18 it says, the one who speaks from himself, we've kind of touched on that today, the one who speaks from himself seeks his own glory. But he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him, he is true, and there is no unrighteousness in him. Wow, is that a mouthful or what? I mean, when people do the denominational thing, when they cut themselves off from the Word of God, as I had a pastor say to me one time, I've been a Southern Baptist all my life, and I'm, I'm not going to change now. 
Now, I'm, I'm showing them accountability in the scripture. I'm showing them 1 Corinthians chapter 5, just as one. And I'm getting, I'm a Southern Baptist. Now, I could put anyone in there. Presbyterian, Pentecostal. I mean, just throw the name in. It doesn't matter. It's, it's all the same attitude. So don't be pointing the finger at the Southern Baptists. To the pastors, teachers, professors, I say, uh, put aside your distinctions, the things that make you special, the things that make you a person that propagates your own teaching or the teaching of other men, and be one with the body. I, I think that's the best choice. I really think on the day of the Bema Seat of Christ, you're going to only hear, we're only going to hear, well done, good and faithful servant, if that's where we are. If we've been striving to put the church back together. <laughs> I can't do that, it's too big. Don't worry about that. You only have to worry about yourself, you don't have to worry about everybody else, but you do have to be concerned that you see a, a gleam in Jesus' eye when he says to you, well done, good and faithful servant, rather than just staring at you while the while the works are just going up in flames. That's not going to be fun. That's not. In every argument, there is only one person that holds the truth. That's it. There's, there's no other way of looking at the truth. I mean, unless you've been totally overcome by what the world is teaching, that every man is uh, God in his own eyes, uh, and that every man is the source of his own truth. I mean, if you want to buy into that, you could forget about what I'm saying. Otherwise, you have to believe in absolutes. And you have to believe in absolute truth. Truth is not man's truth. It is not according to each person. Truth is God, comes from God, and it is one. Truth is not God. Truth comes from God. God is the author, the sustainer, the source of truth, and he's the only one who is. During one of the darkest times in Israel's history, that is the time of the judges, beginning in the opening chapters, we are told that times went from bad to worse constantly until they reached the point when a Levite of the priestly line, okay, religious guy, he had a concubine. He shouldn't have had a concubine. He knew about the sanctity of marriage. And not had uh, one, uh, not had one. But speaking about the evil of the day, he did. It was an evil day. It was an evil period that lasted quite a while. He went after her so because she left home. And he's bringing her back home. And he goes to the city. And in the city, there were evil men. They raped and killed her and killed her. And it was horrible. So, I mean, this kind of sounds familiar in our day, right? He cuts her up in 12 pieces. This is, this is so disgusting. And sends her to the 12 tribes of Israel. I mean, nothing's ever been done like this. I mean, these are evil people. And they, they, now all of a sudden they know what's right and wrong. And the judgment was so fair in those days, an entire tribe of men lost their lives over this. I mean, not, not the men who did the deed, an entire tribe. Judges ends the book with these words, verse 25, final chapter. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Everyone was a king in his own eyes. That's where we are. That's where we are. 
That verse is commentary on our times. As a preacher, I know the direction of the world, and the world needs the call for salvation. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. However, often when the land is in such grave danger, the church is either persecuted, or like ours, it can become worldly, weak, ignorant, and dormant. How many people? I talked to one today. You know, I, I just I can't witness to people. It doesn't matter what the reason is. I mean, you could just stop there. I just, I can't witness to people. Jesus said, go into all the world and make disciples. And who did he say that to? Oh, there's gifted people. I'm not gifted that way. Or whatever the reason. It doesn't matter. It's just, it's, it's justifying what we do or we don't do before God. It's just a manner of all people. And this is a good person. We hardly ever see our own sins. And in the church today, accountability and church discipline is unheard of or thought to be unloving. I mean, this, this is worldly thinking. The world worldly. I don't think the word worldly is even used anymore ever, is it? But the unloving part of no church discipline is directed to God by men who refuse to exercise church te- the church teaching of Matthew 18, 1 Corinthians 5, and every other part of the New Testament. I mean, the New Testament was written by the apostles, granted. And those apostles moved on, and those churches didn't recognize the apostles oftentimes. Why do you think Paul always starts with his name in big, bold letters, Paul, the apostle? Why? They didn't recognize him as an apostle. I mean, these are haughty, self-directed, self-empowered, self-honoring churches. I mean, have you read 1 Corinthians? Can you find a chapter where they're not being condemned? I mean, he's got to weep and cry over it with a second letter. And then what we call the second letter is a third letter to make things right and get back online because he loves them so much. But he had to tear them up with the truth because they were so far off track. You think we're not off track today? I mean, with our seminaries and our our division that's fractured the church into a thousand people, you really think we're on track? You think we're better than the Corinthians or the Galatians or any of the other churches? They didn't have the humility to let an apostle speak to them. You think we're going to let an ordinary person speak to us? Well, and and who's who's ordinary not to speak? The uneducated men of this day spoke for God. Do you think that's changed? That hasn't changed. The educated don't know what they're doing half the time because their education is getting in the way. It's, it's inflated their minds like 1 Corinthians 8.1. I mean, think, things can uh, sacrifice to idols. Concerning things sacrificed to idols, we all have knowledge. Knowledge inflates. Knowledge inflates. Does that mean you should be stupid? No, it's just the manner in which you would go about it. You seek it in prayer and the word of God. You ask God to give you Holy Spirit and discernment. You ask him to break you and break you of sin and make you holy. I mean, we do that. Are we doing that all the time? Are we praying in such a way? Or we don't do any of that and we just look at commentaries and we believe certain people and everybody else is wrong. 
You pick A or B. I think I'm going to go with. I think I'm going to go with uh, everybody else is wrong is wrong. But the unloving part of no church discipline, as I've already said, it's directed towards God in disobedience. Every church was held accountable for error, if not gross sins, but two in Revelation and Thessalonica. The two, two churches spoken of in Revelation and Thessalonica, the Thessalonian church was only weeks old. I mean, they, they had a good shot at being good for a little while. Which was, uh, all the rest of the New Testament is, is a testament to church accountability. That's what the apostles want. I mean, you look at the general epistles. You know, you, you go through the, the general epistles and you look at James and you look at Peter and you look at John and Jude. You look at these men and you know what they're worried about? You know what their concern is? Their big concern having seen Judas and knowing that story oh so well was about people falling away for the faith, not being real. That's where their big concern was. And they wanted accountability because they wanted the church to be pure. They didn't want to help sending people to hell by allowing them to think they were in the kingdom when they weren't. Wake up. Don't do what Judas, Judas did. Don't, don't hang over precipice and, and fall to, the, to your death so your bowels burst open and then you wind up in hell. That was their, and it should have been, their concern. And they wrote to the people, they wrote to the churches, even though the people had moved on and they weren't with the apostles anymore. The apostles were left behind. It doesn't matter that they were apostles. And it doesn't matter today when people speak if they tell the truth uh, from the word of God. However, and unfortunately, the solidarity within church groups and individuals will not allow the word of God to be preached by anyone but among their own number. When you're in your own number and everybody is faithful to everybody else, things go along without any change. That's the purpose of it. I don't want anybody telling me what to do, so we just become a group. That's the way it is. This church will be held accountable one day. The church I'm a part of, the church I'm living in, as we all will. It's all going to be held accountable. Does a church build with gold, silver, precious stones when everyone believes they're right in the face of the word of God? Doesn't matter what the word says, I'm right. The church today is mixed with believers and unbelievers, which is a thing that God hates. I mean, just spend some time in Ezra and Nehemiah. You get the picture. They're out in the cold. They're crying. He's pulling those hair out of their beards. I mean, these are godly, standing alone prophets. And they want to do what's right, and they don't want believers and unbelievers together. And there's the teaching, 1 Corinthians 7. I mean, it's all laid out what to do and how to live. Then there are Christians living in sin, and all people can say is, well, nobody's perfect. You don't think God's going to be upset with that? I tell you, there is going to be a bonfire, a great fire for our churches if we don't wake up, if we don't humble ourselves. It won't be the fire of condemnation. Men will be saved. Yet it's through fire, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. That's the day that concerns me. 
That's the day that I'm worried about. Are you? All right, so maybe you're not a pastor. Maybe you're not an elder. Maybe you're not a deacon. Maybe you're not a preacher. Maybe you're not a professor. Maybe you're just a Christian sitting in the pew. Let me ask you, what's your responsibility sitting in the pew? Well, I'm not a leader. I don't have any responsibility. You think that's what Jesus is going to say to you one day? You think he's going to say, well, you know, you were nobody. I didn't make you anybody. You know, you, you could just slide. It's all okay. I'm telling you, I don't think it's going to go that way. I don't think that the First Corinthians 3 is pastors. Think, you know, that's for pastors. Yeah, everything, every, the universe does circle around me. Yeah, no, it's not that way. The way the church is even organized and structured is in the New Testament. Making disciples, being disciple makers, discipleship is nothing what it should be today. And, and, and some men want to make it better, but it's not about numbers and it's not about how you break apart. It's about what's in the heart of people. It's about people coming into a church and looking at the church and going, this isn't right. I mean, a person who has the Spirit of God actually has the capability of doing that. You could actually look at 1 Corinthians, Acts, look, at, look throughout the, the New Testament, what's being said, and, and, and all of that, and, say, and look at the church and go, this isn't even organized right. I mean, where's the power of the Holy Spirit? You know, where's the, prayer, the seasoned prayers? Where, where's the prayer meetings that go on all night? You know, where's the need? Where's the... You know, I can't do this by myself. I mean, I'm a poor sinner and this is impossible. Where is that crying out? Or is it just dusting the pews with our pants while we sit there and we judge the preacher for how he's, the diction he's using and whether or not he's educated enough? When Paul's saying, when I came to you, I didn't come to you with superiority speech. I wanted it to rest in the power of God. Is that what we're saying today? I really don't think so. Heavenly Father, it's a hard message. It's hard for me because I've spent enough years and the older I get, the more guilty I feel for being here. I have to say these things. I say them here. I say them out where I'm ministering in, and, and I get pastors hating me because they don't want to hear this nonsense. They don't want to read with understanding the Word of God. Because you have to be willing to do his will. And we don't. We, we, we want to be comfortable. We want to be prosperous with numbers. And we don't really care whether those numbers go to heaven or hell. And that's the only way I can say it. Because if you're not really wanting to do it right, if you're not wanting to put yourself at risk to do it right, if you're not willing to go against the tide, then you're going with the flow. And when you go the, with the flow, you're condemned. I mean, I have to confess years of just going with the flow. And I'm confessing them every day because I don't want to stand before God one day and he, he looks at me and, and, and I wasn't confessed. Because when we confess our sins, according to 1 Corinthians 3, we're forgiven those sins. Now, when you confess those sins, that means you've got to turn. You've got to turn away from those sins, those sins too, or else yeah, it's, not, it's not really, you're not confessing anything. That's why... I am the way I am. That's why I, can, I care about church discipline and, and accountability and I, I care about these things because I've been guilty and I, I carry that guilt and I have to fight against it every day or else I just go back to slouching and, and the way I was before. And I don't want that to happen ever. 
until I pass from this life. And every Christian who's a Christian who's been bought by the blood of Christ needs to believe this way. Lord, I'm turning the prayer back into preaching. I'm sorry, I apologize for that. You're the God and the only God that can change men's hearts. You're the only one who can change my heart. You're the only one who can change anyone's heart. We're all sinners, and as sinners, we're, we're, we're obnoxious. Lord, we are poor. We're, we have no means of making things right, apart from your grace, the sufferings of your Son, the blood that was shed, the horror of coming under the wrath of God when he loved you perfectly and infinitely, and that love was turned into to anger and wrath and contempt. We can't, we can't imagine what that looked like, what that felt like. It's impossible. We never will. I mean, we'll never be God. I'm sure we're going to get really close, not to being God, but to feeling what you feel, felt and understood what you understood and, and, and why, because we're, we're going to be glorified one day. After the second resurrection, we're going to be so close to you. And I think in that closeness, we're going we're gonna to have a sight of God that we never thought we could. I think. I'm not positive, but I think. I think that's what all the whole plan is about. In that nearness, that intimacy. You're, you're a relational God in the, in the Godhead, and you want us to share that for some. some reason that we can't comprehend because you're God and we're not. Thank you, Lord, for the plan, for the grace, and for the choice. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.